0: You're listening to audio from christian.org.uk, the website of the Christian Institute. You can find hundreds more audio files at christian.org.uk. And let me begin by asking this question: Do you owe anything to your parents? And did they owe anything to theirs? The question may seem foolish, but it does have an application. Many Christians today seem to think they owe nothing to the past nothing to the historic church. Christianity is me, my Bible, and my personal relationship with Christ. Perhaps I exaggerate, but only slightly. When this outlook masters the mind, we're very likely to think that we owe nothing to the past. We can ignore those stuffy old cobwebs of history and focus on what God is doing today. However, as a teacher of church history... You wouldn't expect me to agree with any of that. There are many reasons why I do not think we should agree with it. Generally speaking, we might ponder the saying, a nation without a history is like a man without a memory. Amnesia is an unnatural condition, a disease of the mind. And Christians without a history are no better than nations without a history. As a church historian, my job is to cure Christians of their amnesia to give them back their memories of who we Christians are, the soil from which we sprang, our community's life story. We need, very often, to be delivered from what C.S. Lewis once called chronological snobbery, the arrogant presumption that our generation knows better than any that went before it. And one way of curing ourselves is by immersing our minds in our Christian past, the lives, deeds, prayers, worship, writings and controversies Of those who went before us we do this not assuming that we of course know better than they did about every imaginable aspect of the faith but ready to learn from them now this morning we're looking specifically at the early church let's say the first four or five hundred years of that life story does this have any particular value for us today well think of you and your bible that new testament of yours Where did it come from? Who decided which writings should go in and which stay out? Why do we have the Gospel of Matthew, but not the Gospel of Thomas? Why the Acts of the Apostles, but not the Acts of Pontius Pilate? It was the early church that made those decisions. They sifted through the body of writings, claiming to have apostolic authority, and sorted out the heavenly wheat from the human chaff. So, in looking at the early church, we're looking at the church that gave us the New Testament. And I suppose for most of us that adds a certain interest, a certain value to the earliest part of the Christian life story. Now, early church history is usually thought of as beginning after the apostles. In other words, When the apostles passed from the scene and a new generation stepped into their shoes, we then have the crossover from the apostolic church to the early church. And by and large, I accept that. But the boundary is a bit messy. To change the metaphor, the apostle John throws a big spanner in the works because he lived an almost indecently long time, dying as late perhaps as the year 110 by then the first of the early church fathers are already active you may or may not have heard of clement of rome and ignatius of antioch but they're among the most important of the first generation of early church fathers and they were alive and working and writing before john died so as i say the boundary between apostolic history and early church history is blurred The biggest blur, however, concerns another of the early church fathers, Polycarp of Smyrna. Why does he blur things with such a smudge? Because the apostle John was his mentor. Polycarp sat at John's feet in John's old age. And Polycarp himself then mentored the greatest of the second century fathers of the church, Irenaeus of Lyon. Let me give you Irenaeus' testimony. I can tell the very place in which the blessed Polycarp used to sit when he preached his sermons, how he came in and went out, the manner of his life, what he looked like, the sermons he delivered to the people, and how he used to report his association with John and the others who had seen the Lord, how he would relate their words and the things concerning the Lord he had heard from them about his miracles and teachings polycarp had received all this from eyewitnesses of the word of life and related all these things in accordance with the scriptures i listened eagerly to these things at the time by god's mercy which was bestowed on me and i made notes of them not on paper but in my heart and constantly by the grace of god i meditate on them faithfully so here we have a chain of continuity binding the apostolic age With the age of the early church the apostle john taught polycarp polycarp taught irenaeus and irenaeus wrote the greatest of the theological works of the second century a colossal treasure trove of a treatise entitled against heresies so we distinguish between the apostolic age recorded in the new testament and the age of the early church where the familiar names of Peter, John, Luke, and Paul give way to the less familiar names of Clement, Ignatius, Polycarp, and Irenaeus. There was, however, no clean break separating these two ages. Rather, the one bled into the other. It was more like the transition from one season of the year to the next. In many ways, the story of the church that we find in the pages of the New Testament simply flowed on into the story of the church that we find if we look in the age of clement ignatius polycarp and irenaeus it is i think the mark of a cult or a sect to say that the whole church suddenly became apostate overnight the moment the last apostle died that view held for example by jehovah's witnesses and mormons is merely a cover to justify their own departures from the faith of the early church, notably concerning the Trinity and the person of Christ. Indeed, if we were to pick out a golden thread that runs right through the early church era, that would be it the Trinity and the person of Christ. Virtually all the doctrinal controversies of the early church revolved around these basic issues Who is God? Who is Jesus Christ? Let's follow this golden thread for a while. It will help us to uh, get a clear view of the unfolding drama uh, of the early Christians, our forefathers and foremothers in the faith. The first piece of the golden thread leads us then into the second century. And here we find a furious battle raging around the uniqueness of Christ. Is he the perfect saviour, the fullness of God's truth, the ultimate revelation of deity, the only mediator between God and the world? Or is he just one among a number of heavenly powers? So that knowing Christ is not sufficient, we have to be initiated into a knowledge of a whole array of mystical esoteric entities who populate the heavens if we're to be sure of salvation at last well this was the conflict between the christians of the second century and the gnostics gnostic comes from the greek word gnosis meaning knowledge gnostics claimed that they had a special secret knowledge of heavenly mysteries allegedly delivered to them by the apostles in a private tradition unknown to the church at large There were many different Gnostic systems, but they all tended to downgrade Christ into merely one of the heavenly powers that control human destiny. Now, various Christian thinkers argued against this Gnostic devaluing of Christ. Uh, The most intellectually outstanding was Irenaeus of Lyon, uh, the disciple of Polycarp uh, that I mentioned a moment ago. We know little of Irenaeus the man, save that to judge by his writings, uh, he was obviously well-educated, both in the Bible and Greek philosophy. His personality, insofar as we can ascertain it, is attractive. Although a lion towards the Gnostics as foes of the faith, Irenaeus was a lamb towards fellow Christians with whom he disagreed about lesser matters within the family of faith, As it has often been said, the name Irenaeus means peaceful, and the person lived up to the name. He was a man of peace toward his brethren, despite differences of opinion. But towards Gnostic deniers of his saviour, the man of peace became a man of war. Irenaeus argued passionately for the transcendent uniqueness of Christ. He is no mere heavenly power jostling among others. He is the singular and matchless Son of God, the all-sufficient revealer and saviour in whom alone we have the final fullness and perfection of truth and life. If we took a Bible verse to sum up Irenaeus's and indeed the church's position in the Gnostic controversy, perhaps it would be John 14 verse 6. I am the way, the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me well the labors of Irenaeus uh, and other orthodox theologians put clear blue water between the church and the Gnostics interestingly much of uh, ancient Gnosticism has recently risen from the dead in the new age movement one modern Christian author Peter Jones wrote a book on the subject entitled the Gnostic Empire Strikes Back so, the old second century controversy is alive again uh, in the 21st. Now, following our golden thread into the third century, uh, we see a different danger now emerging to jeopardize the faith of our spiritual ancestors. This time, it involved the entire nature of God. How do we safeguard the two essential truths of the unity of God? God is one and the deity of Christ. Christ is God incarnate. The Old Testament teaches an overwhelming monotheism. There is only one God, the exalted Lord of heaven. The New Testament teaches that Jesus Christ is God in the flesh here on earth. So are there two gods? To answer this problem, some thinkers within the church embraced a view known as modalism or Sabellianism, after one of its chief advocates, the Roman theologian Sibelius. Sibelius thought he'd come up with the dream solution to the vexing puzzle. You could preserve the oneness of God and the deity of Christ by saying that God is a single person who simply acts in different ways or modes. He acts now as creator, God the Father, Now as Redeemer, God the Son, and now as Sanctifier, God the Holy Spirit. To give a human illustration, it would be like a man who has three roles to play in his life. At home, he's the head of a family. At work, he's a business executive. And in his free time, he's the captain of the local soccer team. That's what God is like, Sibelius said. One person with three roles. So in his own mind, Sibelius had upheld the cardinal truth of monotheism, there is only one God, and the deity of Christ, the one God, who is only one person, became flesh as Jesus Christ, just as in the Old Testament he had been creator of the world, and after Pentecost, the indwelling spirit of the church. One person, three hats. But... Sibelianism did not wash with the majority of the church's theologians. It had brilliant critics in two of the most influential Christian thinkers of the 3rd century, Origen of Alexandria and Tertullian of Carthage. The two men could hardly have been more different. Origen was a a gentle, broad-minded scholar, profoundly learned not only in the Bible but in Greek pagan philosophy too, which he appreciated as a half-successful quest for truth. How apt that Alexandria should have been his native city, capital of Roman Egypt, the second greatest city of the Roman Empire, and its intellectual and cultural headquarters, where philosophy, science, and literary pursuits flourished gloriously. By contrast, Tertullian was a fire-breathing, narrow-minded, spiritual street fighter who knew his Bible well enough, but utterly despised all pagan philosophy as a sickening mess of diabolical lies. His native city, Carthage, capital of Roman North Africa, was the third greatest city of the empire, and mother to a hot-headed breed of Christians who were just as likely to smash pagan temples as be themselves harassed by pagans. Now paradoxically, despite their enormous contributions to third-century Christianity, especially in combating Sabellianism, both Origen of Alexandria and Tertullian of Carthage fell into other errors in the later judgment of Orthodox Christians. They have therefore never been recognized as fathers of the church. But there is no doubt that in their own day, before the church had had time to reflect on the less happy aspects of origins and Titullian's thinking, these men were instrumental in helping the church drive the Sabellian view of the Trinity off the field and into the wilderness. The Egyptian and the North African theologian both pointed out the fatal flaw in Sabellius's theology. By imagining God to be a single person, Sibelius had destroyed the possibility of any personal relationship between Christ and his heavenly father. Sibelius maintained they were the same person acting in two different ways but does the whole gospel revelation not make it shiningly clear that Christ and his father had a personal relationship with each other they loved each other communed with each other Spoke to each other. The Father sent the Son. The Son obeyed the Father. Unless the Gospel revelation is a charade, a massive sham and deception, we must hold on to the personal distinctions within the Godhead. The Father is not the Son. The Son is not the Father. And of course, neither of them is the Holy Spirit. So Sibelius' dream solution to how the unity of God can be reconciled with the deity of Christ turned out to be more of a nightmare. It undermines the entire fabric of the revelation of God in Christ, making it a piece of theatrical unreality, with one person pretending to be two persons. The church escaped from the furnace of the Sibelian controversy in the 3rd century Determined at all costs to preserve the personal distinctions within the divine nature. If we took a Bible verse to sum up the orthodox position in the Sibelian controversy, perhaps it would be John chapter 5 and verse 19. The son can do nothing of himself but what he sees the father do. For whatever he does, the son also does in like manner which well expresses the distinction between the persons. Let's now follow our golden thread into the fourth century. Steal your nerves. We find ourselves walking into the theological equivalent of a First World War battlefield with protracted trench warfare and clashes on the scale of the Somme. Almost the whole fourth century was given over to what was arguably the most important controversy in the entire history of the church, the Arian controversy. Forever afterwards, this controversy and its outcome would be branded with burning fire into the church's collective soul. The controversy is named after the man who sparked it off, Arius of Alexandria. It's probably no accident that Arius lived and preached in Alexandria, the city of the great origin. Arius was still trying to solve the problem of how God could be one if Christ and his father were distinct. Now Arius, we might say, went in the opposite direction to Sibelius. He upheld the personal distinction between father and son, which Sibelius had dissolved away. Origen's legacy had made this non-negotiable. But Arius denied that the Son was in any sense true God. Rather, he was the first and greatest of the Father's creations. Only the Father is God. In other words, Arius preserved monotheism at the price of limiting deity to the Father alone. We could think of Arius as the precursor of today's Jehovah's Witnesses. Their theology is simply revamped Arianism. And Arius, indeed, is their great and acknowledged hero from the early church. Well, the Arians and their allies managed to convulse the body of the church for some 70-odd years of bitter, mind-boggling conflict. In part, this was because the controversy broke out at the very time That the roman empire was changing its mind about christianity up until now the church had been a persecuted minority in a hostile pagan society but the situation changed dramatically when the emperor constantine embraced the christian faith fighting off a number of rivals by the year 324 constantine was the single undisputed master of the empire From that moment onward, the emperors would virtually always be professing Christians. It was as if not just Constantine, but the imperial monarchy itself had submitted to Christ. Now that brought an end to the persecution of the church by a pagan state. But it also heralded a new unforeseen desire by the state to intervene in the affairs of the church in the context of the arian controversy this was a double-edged sword it could work to the advantage of the orthodox if an emperor backed them but it could lead to further persecution of the orthodox within the church if an emperor backed the arians unfortunately for the orthodox many emperors did choose to support arianism so that orthodox christians often now found themselves persecuted not by a pagan state, but by a Christian state that had thrown its weight behind a heretical faction in the church. However, in the providence of God, the Arian controversy proved to be the anvil on which the church hammered out its understanding of the Trinity as never before. Not that the church had ever disbelieved uh, in the Trinity... But the Aryan controversy forced Christians to think it through with a greater depth and precision. Now this hammering process fell into two stages. Stage one was dominated by one of the most illustrious and most heroic theologians of all time, Athanasius of Alexandria. John Calvin would later refer to him as the chief defender of the orthodox faith, a divine writer worthy of immortal praise, the good Athanasius of ancient times. In Athanasius, Arianism more than met its match. According to his friend and admirer, Gregory of Nazianzus, Athanasius was a small, thin man with a beautiful face, piercing eyes, and a mysterious aura of power which affected even his enemies. He had a quite uncanny ability to pop up suddenly out of nowhere to confront emperors or minister to persecuted Christians. His Arian foes accused him of being a magician. I said Athanasius was a heroic theologian because throughout almost his whole ministry, he lived under the threat of violence and death from powerful Arian emperors, uh, enemies, I beg your pardon emperors among them uh, in church and state the true deity of jesus christ was no mere academic idea for athanasius it was a matter of life and death often quite literally one quickly loses count of the number of times that athanasius was denounced and vilified by arian controlled church councils banished from alexandria hunted by imperial stormtroopers in hiding in the trackless wastes of the egyptian desert it would have been enough to break the will of a lesser man as indeed many did break and gave up the struggle but athanasius never broke nor even wavered as far as he was concerned a christianity without a divine christ was worth absolutely nothing if we took a bible verse to sum up athanasius's position perhaps it would be john chapter 20 and verse 28 thomas said to him to jesus my lord and my god either this or no christianity at all that was athanasius's uncompromising message to the divided church of his day now athanasius was the supreme champion of the formula by which the orthodox opponents of Arianism expressed their faith in Christ's deity, namely the formula that he is of the same essence as the Father. Of the same essence in Greek is homoousios, one of the most crucial words in church history. This was the word chosen by the orthodox to assert, as powerfully as the Greek language possibly could, that the person of Christ is as eternal and divine as the person of god the father essence in greek refers to something's deepest and most fundamental reality so by affirming that the son is of the same essence as the father homoousios with the father athanasius and the orthodox were making son and father equal in possessing true deity Now this word homoousios was adopted as a test of orthodoxy in the year 325 at the great church council of Nicaea a city in Asia Minor. This was the first of the so-called ecumenical councils that is a council representing the entire worldwide church. Ecumenical comes from uh, the Greek word for the inhabited earth and by the way it's nothing to do with the modern ecumenical movement. The council sanctioned the use of a creed where this word homoousios was used as a way of affirming Christ's divine equality with God the Father. Significantly, the council was summoned by the emperor, Constantine, who saw it as his God-given duty to bring peace to a fragmented church. However, the, uh, the peace proved to be temporary, and the creed of Nicaea would become a flashpoint of contention in the church almost until the end of the 4th century. The Orthodox stood by the creed. Arians and their allies and sympathisers did everything they could to neutralise it or indeed to jettison the creed altogether. That brings us to stage two of the process by which the church hammered out its doctrine of the Trinity And the second stage was dominated, oddly enough, by a trio of Greek thinkers, sort of human trinity, if you like, uh, usually nicknamed the Cappadocian Fathers. That was because they all hailed from the Roman province of Cappadocia uh, in Asia Minor. They were Basil of Caesarea, his brother Gregory of Nyssa, and Basil's best friend Gregory of Nazianzus. They each had different gifts basil was a great leader and organizer of men he provided the inspiration and charisma driving the grueling struggle against arianism incidentally he also wrote beautiful greek and is highly unusual with respect to a different kind of beauty basil is one of the rare figures of ancient times who showed an exquisite appreciation of the beauty of nature People did not normally wax eloquent about nature until the dawn of the Romantic movement in the 18th century. Basil is a man out of time, an ancient Greek Romantic. His best friend, Gregory of Nazianzus, was one of the most brilliant preachers of the ancient world. He has few equals in the entire history of the church for his ability to make theology catch fire and burn its way into the mind and heart his sermons on the trinity in constantinople capital of the eastern half of the empire transformed a tiny demoralized congregation worshiping amid an arian city into a congregation bursting at the seams as people flocked to hear gregory's entrancing oratory later generations would honor him with the title gregory the theologian as if there were no other Then the third member of the Cappadocian trio, uh, Basil's brother, the mild and humble Gregory of Nyssa. He was a deep theologian too, but was perhaps more celebrated and remembered among Greek Christians for his masterful writings on the spiritual life. Well, the Cappadocian fathers picked up where Athanasius had left off, and they brought the contest with Arianism to a successful conclusion. To them, we owe the formula that God is three persons in one essence. In Greek, three hypostases in one usia. To try to put that into modern English, there is one reality of deity or divine being. But it exists in three eternal and concrete manifestations. The Father, the Son and the holy spirit each person contains as it were the fullness of the one godhead now ever afterwards that cappadocian formula would be accepted as the church's understanding of how the oneness and the freeness of god are related if we took a bible verse uh, to sum up the cappadocian view it would perhaps be the baptismal formula baptizing them into the name of the father And of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, Matthew 28, verse 19. As the Cappadocians pointed out, name here is in the singular, yet it is shared by three persons, and the believer is baptized equally into all three. Could there be a better demonstration of the equality of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, or their joint status as the one Saviour God? Well, the Arian controversy was finally settled in favour of those who confessed Christ's deity by the second of the great ecumenical councils of the church, the Council of Constantinople in the year 381. Once again, it was an emperor who summoned the council, the orthodox emperor Theodosius. Most church leaders had by now been won over by the Cappadocian fathers Uh, to an acceptance not only of Christ's full deity, but to a full-blooded doctrine of the Trinity. This Trinitarian theology was set forth in a new creed uh, adopted by the Council of Constantinople, known confusingly as the Nicene Creed. It was an expanded version of the earlier Creed of Nicaea, expressing the Church's faith in the divine character of the Holy Spirit, as well as Christ. The Nicene Creed has ever since been the touchstone of orthodoxy in the historic church. Reaffirmed by the Protestant reformers in the 16th century, it is as much part of the evangelical heritage as it is of any other branch of the visible church. Well, perhaps by now you were thinking that the golden thread of controversy... About the person of Christ that we've been following would at last have come to an end. Surely the Council of Constantinople resolved everything in 381. Well, it certainly resolved the issue of Christ's deity. But the church then found itself plunged into dark and stormy waters over the relationship between the divine and the human within the person of Christ. How do his deity and humanity relate to each other? Controversy erupted once again. There were still unplumbed depths in the Saviour's question, who do you say that I am? Now the first phase of this new controversy took the shape of a deadly duel between the Bishop of Constantinople, Nestorius, and the Bishop of Alexandria, Cyril. It was a clash of titans. Constantinople, capital city of the eastern half of the Roman Empire, where the great ecumenical council of 381 had met. Alexandria, the cradle of all that was most brilliant and creative in the theology of the eastern church, the home of Athanasius. It's a painful controversy for the modern student because he or she is apt to feel about Nestorius and Cyril what the spoof history book 1066 and all that says about the cavaliers or royalists and the roundheads or parliamentarians in the English Civil War. Cavaliers, wrong, but romantic. Roundheads, right, but repulsive. One is tempted to say Nestorius, wrong, but romantic. Cyril, right, repulsive. So what was this deadly duel about then? Well Nestorius, the bishop of Constantinople and an eloquent preacher, felt it was vital to distinguish carefully between Christ's two natures, the divine and the human. Disaster would follow if the two were confused with each other. Nestorius was afraid that Christ's deity would be downgraded if it were confounded with his humanity, and conversely, that Christ's humanity would cease to be genuinely human if it were confounded with his deity. So Nestorius's motto was, keep the two natures as far apart as possible. Unfortunately, he chose to express himself in such an unguarded, inadequate way that many began to feel that the bishop of Constantinople was splitting Christ apart into two persons, a human son of man indwelt by a divine son of God. That surely could not be right. If that were the case, one could no longer say Jesus of Nazareth is the son of God, one could only say Jesus of Nazareth had a relationship with the son of God but you could say that of any prophet or holy man alas for nestorius his way of putting things not only seemed to divide christ into two persons it also seemed to insult the virgin mary nestorius decided to wage war against the common custom among christians of calling mary the mother of god what this title meant was that mary gave birth to god incarnate In other words, it was an affirmation of the deity and humanity of Mary's child. He wasn't a mere man, but God in the flesh. Hence, Mary gave birth to God incarnate, the mother of God. For Nestorius, though, this was the very confounding of Christ's deity and humanity that he could not tolerate. Mary, he insisted, must never be called the mother of God. At best, she could be called the mother of christ but you can guess how that played in the years and minds of many if mary is the mother of christ but not the mother of god then is nestorius denying that christ is god nestorius had given a hostage to fortune it would prove his utter undoing the unhappiness about Nestorius which many felt found a passionate spokesman in Cyril of Alexandria convinced that Nestorius was a dangerously unsound thinker on the person of Christ Cyril was appalled that the church of Constantinople capital of the east should be in such a man's hands so the bishop of Alexandria mobilized all the forces at his disposal in a crusade to topple Nestorius It must be admitted that Cyril does not come across as a very likeable fellow in this crusade, or indeed in various other aspects of his life. His harsh temper alienated many, both within and without the church. Cyril's death provoked an unseemly outburst of rejoicing on the part of his critics, one of whom, the normally gentle Theodoret of Cyrus, wrote in transports of ecstasy to the Bishop of Antioch, At last, at last, the villain has gone. The Lord, knowing that this man's spite has been growing daily and harming the body of the church, has cut him off like a plague and taken away the reproach of Israel. The living are delighted by his departure. Perhaps the dead are sorry at his arrival. Indeed, we ought to be alarmed. They might be so annoyed by his presence among them that they send him back. Great care must therefore be taken. It is your holiness's special duty to tell those in charge of the funeral to lay a very large, very heavy stone on Cyril's grave in case he tries to come back and show his unstable mind among us again. Well, whatever one makes of Cyril's personality, the judgment of the later church is that in his theological quarrel with Nestorius, Cyril was fighting the battle of truth. Or at the very least, he was more right than muddle-headed Nestorius. And Cyril did win the victory, largely because he got the emperor, Theodosius II, on his side. Theodosius uh, supported Cyril, summoned another ecumenical council at Ephesus in 431, and this council condemned Nestorius, and then the emperor deposed him if we took a bible verse to sum up cyril's view it would uh, perhaps be elizabeth's exclamation to mary in luke chapter 1 verse 43 why is this granted to me that the mother of my lord should come to me the mother of my lord mary gives birth not to a mere man but to the lord himself the king of heaven born in human flesh However, Cyril's victory over Nestorius still didn't bring an end to the controversies. Fierce debate was soon raging around Eutyches, an influential Christian figure in Constantinople. Eutyches taught that the union between Christ's human and divine natures involved such a close blending of the two that the human nature had been swallowed up and lost in the divine, like a drop of wine in the sea. According to Eutyches, the incarnate son had only one nature. His deity had absorbed his humanity and transformed it into divinity, much as a piece of paper thrown onto a fire will be set alight and changed into fire. Now Flavian, leader of the church in Constantinople, condemned Eutyches for this extreme teaching. But Eutyches had powerful friends in the imperial court. And the new leader of the Alexandrian church, Dioscorus, strongly supported him. Dioscorus is one of the most repellent characters in early church history. He had all of Cyril of Alexandria's personality defects, but none of Cyril's penetrating theological insight. Dioscorus was little better than a sort of spiritual gangster. To settle the new controversy, the Emperor Theodosius summoned another council at Ephesus in the year 449. Dioscorus and his Alexandrians controlled its proceedings like a band of triumphant revolutionaries. They reinstated Eutyches and deposed Flavian for having dared to condemn their hero. In fact, some Alexandrian monks whose zeal outstripped their common sense beat up Flavian so badly that he died of his injuries a few days later. The Alexandrians also refused to listen to an important statement of faith which Leo of Rome sent to Flavian. The statement was utterly opposed to the theology of Eutyches. The refusal of the council to receive Leo's statement outraged Leo and this was a bad mistake by the Alexandrians the whole western half of the church looked to Leo for direction as leader of the church in Rome capital city of the west he was the western church's most eminent figure Leo was the most outstanding theologian who had so far led the church in Rome personally a very gentle and moderate man he was a great preacher and a brave spokesman for the roman population against invading armies of huns and vandals he twice saved the city of rome from destruction by pleading with the hunnish and vandal chieftains alienating leo was an almighty clangor that dioscorus and his alexandrians would live to regret well the second council of ephesus in 449 then was a total victory for the extremists led by Eutyches and Dioscorus. But the Alexandrians had triumphed at Ephesus only because imperial troops and gangs of violent Alexandrian monks had backed them. Leo of Rome positively glowed with wrath and thundered against the wicked council as a synod of robbers. The name stuck, and the council is still referred to today as the Robber Synod. The decisions of Ephesus were beyond remedy, as long as Emperor Theodosius II lived. But as luck or providence would have it, he was killed in a riding accident in 450. And the new emperor, Marcion, was a very different kind of man. In 451, Marcion summoned a fresh council at the city of Chalcedon near Constantinople. The tables were now turned on Eutyches and Dioscorus, quite decisively both of whom were deposed under the guidance of leo's ambassadors the council produced a new creed stating that christ was incarnate in two natures the saviour's deity and humanity each retained their own distinctive properties so that he is truly divine and truly human at the same time in one person like the nicene creed the creed of chalcedon has ever since been a gold standard for orthodox thinking about the person of christ not everyone in the east accepted it the alexandrians eventually went their own way in the form of the coptic orthodox church rejecting chalcedon and so did a few other bodies of eastern christians their subsequent history lay outside the mainstream of orthodox christianity but the great bulk of the church in both east and west uh, embraced the creed of chalcedon as setting down the basic biblical guidelines that should never be overstepped in thinking and speaking about the person of the savior if we took a bible verse to sum up chalcedon's view maybe uh, it would be colossians chapter 2 verse 9 in him the whole fullness of deity dwells in bodily form here we have christ's two natures in a single breath the whole fullness of deity his divine nature in bodily form his human nature now we'll spare ourselves from looking at the controversies that sputtered on after chalcedon i think we've probably now grasped the essential point the story of the early church in so many ways revolved around the same fundamental issues over a period of centuries who is jesus christ and in what way does he reveal god to us the trinity and the person of christ here are the twin motifs that dominate the spiritual landscape of our forefathers and foremothers in the faith for the first four or five hundred years of the church's life story These matters lie at the heart of Christianity in every age. Nothing else can be right if we do not get these right. And getting them right may well involve hard thinking and convulsive controversy. So the early Christians found, and so we may find. The writer of the letter to the Hebrews says in Hebrews 11 and verse 32... And what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets. And I have to say the same. Time would fail me to tell of the other great figures who illuminate the early Christian centuries. All I can do is mention a few of them in passing. Justin Martyr, the converted pagan philosopher, who continued to wear the philosopher's gown, but now taught christ as the true wisdom put to death for his faith in the year 165 cyprian of carthage the converted aristocrat who gave away his wealth to the poor cyprian is one of the most evangelical of the fathers he led the church in carthage through some of its most turbulent years amid persecution and schisms he too died a martyr in the year 258 John Chrysostom, perhaps the only preacher whose eloquence outshone that of Gregory of Nazianzus. John's sermons are still, today, the most widely studied of any from the early church. He, too, in effect, suffered martyrdom in the year 407, exiled and hounded to death by an emperor and empress he had dared to criticise and defy. Augustine of Hippo Regius second greatest city of roman north africa the most intellectually brilliant of the western fathers whose writings would be regarded as a fountain of the deepest spiritual wisdom for the next thousand years and more augustine also gives us the best personal introduction to that springtime period of the church through his autobiography the confessions Probably the most moving, soul-searching account ever written of a sinner's pilgrimage to Christ and faith. As I say, time fails me, but uh, I hope I've done enough to awaken your interest. Brace yourself, meet the early church fathers, and if you haven't already begun, begin the long path towards the cure for chronological snobbery.